0: Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. But uh, go ahead and get your Bibles open to John chapter number 20. John chapter number 20. Uh, man, it is it is good to celebrate Resurrection Day, isn't it? I love Easter. Easter is my, my favorite uh, christian holiday i even like it better than christmas uh because christmas yeah we're celebrating the birth of jesus and that's vitally important Lemon, don't get me wrong there but just the, the what the the death burial, and resurrection does for us is is great and i love worshiping a risen savior and my brother several years ago you know my brother uh he's a, a atheist agnostic i don't know what he is uh he's lost is what he is and so we're praying for him and uh, he's bedridden right now so do pray for him And he may be watching and if he is watching it's time to get saved, Bryson. Uh, but anyway, uh, so he's, he, uh, he asked me several years ago, he says, how come everybody puts uh, he is risen uh, instead of he has risen? Uh, you know, like Pat, because he's an English major. I'm like, because he, he, he yes, he has, you know, Lazarus, you can say about Lazarus, Lazarus has risen. Because Lazarus rose and he died again. Jesus is risen because he's alive and he's never going to die again. He is alive and well and with the Father this morning. So I, lo- I love... Easter, And I was going to say, uh, you know, as we just sang, Jesus is risen indeed today, but we didn't sing that song. Uh, but Jesus is risen indeed today, amen? Uh, I did a, a Bible study several years ago uh, by Andy Stanley called Starting Point. And the, the basic teaching of this, this Bible study was uh, to help us really understand uh, where our faith comes from. And here is his, 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 um, his teaching. For you to really understand anything, not just faith and the Bible and Christianity, but for you to really understand anything, you have to go back and learn where it started. You have to look at how it began, the foundation of it. Everything has a starting point. Every job has a starting point. Every relationship has a starting point. Every journey has a has a starting point every living thing on the planet has a starting point you had a starting point you know some of you were started on purpose some of you were what we call happy accidents Um, we put happy in there because we love you in Jesus amen Uh, so some of you were started on purpose some of you were started by accident but we're glad however you started we're glad you're here Every relationship has a starting point. You know, I remember mine and April's relationship starting point. It's different for each of us. I remember our relationship starting point when I first... I didn't fall in love with her then, but I really thought, man, i got to get to know this girl. Uh, it was during soccer season. Um, you know, it was my sophomore year, I think her freshman year. Uh, was that right? It was your sophomore? My, no, it was your freshman. Uh, we were playing soccer together. You didn't have a car yet, so I'm assuming freshman year. So it was our, her freshman year, my, my junior, uh, sophomore year. Uh, We played soccer together, and it had co-ed soccer. And every after every soccer game, uh, the the bus would stop on the way home and have uh, like a Burger King or McDonald's or something. And you know the kids would get we would all get something to eat. I remember uh, it was me and Robbie Winston. Uh, Say who's Robbie Winston? Don't worry about it. And uh, Mandy Walker. Say who's Mandy Walker? Really, don't worry about it. Uh, And April. And uh, we all sat down at a Burger King and had dinner together right after a game. And I remember talking to her and thinking, man, I just this girl's something else. And then, of course, soccer ended. I didn't see her for a while. She remembers it the very next year. where So I made a great impression on her in soccer. I was such an incredible athlete that <laughs> it was burned in her memory how, how wonderful I was. The next year, we were at, went at play practice, or I think it was tryouts. And so I was in drama, and she was in drama, and so she, she came into the one-act play tryouts, and we sat on the stage together, and she'd just got in her car uh, because she was a spoiled little rich girl. So how do you know she was spoiled? She had a swimming pool and a satellite dish. And in this day, I'm talking like the big satellite dishes, that, and this was the 90s, so you know she could get, she could get the, the East Coast or the West Coast uh, ABC, that made her rich, and she had a swimming pool, and her parents bought her a car. I had to share a car with my dad. It was a 1978 Mercury Marquis. Now, it had air ride, suspension, and a working eight-track player. It was a nice car. I could It was only two-door, but I could fit like 12 people in that thing. It was a boat. It was so great. I remember one day I was driving home after work, and it was real foggy, and uh, I got rear-ended by a guy. I was pulling into my road, so I was almost at a dead still, and this guy was flying, and he slammed into me, destroyed his car, did nothing to mine. It's like, that's what you get, I, that's why you drive tanks, okay? But anyway, that's nothing to do with it today. Uh, but I remember our relationship, we had a starting point, and, you know, everything has a starting point. Your faith has a starting point. If you're a believer today, if you're saved today, and you're on your way to heaven today, your faith what you and even if you're not, if you're here because again, if you're here because your mom invited you to come to Easter service and you just like, well, I gotta I gotta be nice, you know, mom says so. I'll show up on Easter and, and, and Mother's Day, so that's what if you have no faith at all, what you believe about God has a starting point. Maybe it was what your parents told you when you were a kid. As you grew up, your parents would read you Bible stories and they would tell you about God. And so what you believe about God and what you know to be true about God comes from what your parents told you. Maybe it's what what a religious leader told you was true. You went to church and a preacher got up and he told you, this is what the Bible says, this is what God thinks, this is what God says, and that's what you know about God. That's your faith. That's the starting point of your faith. Or maybe, and this is the best one, your faith and what you know about God is based on what the Bible says is true. You know, I tell you all the time, you know, don't, don't take my word for everything that God says. Read the Bible yourself. Study the Bible yourself. You know, understand that you know what God is saying. But whatever it was, what you, whatever it was it became the foundation of what you believed about God. And maybe, and I know this was true with me, <clears throat> as you got older... In your faith and got older in your life you began to be a little uneasy about what the foundation of what you believe to be true was you know how do we how do we know truly how do we honestly know what is true about God well the Bible okay the Bible says it great that's a, that's, that's a good thing to be. And look, we need, you need to understand, because I've, I've talked to, and I try to teach my kids this, and I'm gonna, we're trying to really implement this in our, our youth and our, our young adults. But, you know, when someone says, well, what do you believe about God? Oh, why do you believe that? Well, the Bible says it, or my pastor says it, is not a great answer. I, yes, because the Bible says it, yes, but you also got to be able to back it up with, well, what is, where does the Bible say it, and how do we rectify that? And so it's called apologetics. We're going to really start teaching that so you can understand why you believe what you believe, but you know, how do we, how do we really understand what's true about God? You know, I think of Samuel, uh, in the temple, you know, the story of Samuel in the temple, he's there with Eli and he's a young boy and he's been given to God. And one night he goes to bed and he hears his name call out. And so he gets up and he goes to Eli and says, Eli, what do you want? Eli says, I didn't say anything. Go to bed. Happens again. And he goes up and says, Eli, what do you need? And Eli, he's a cranky old man who's been woken up twice now. And so understandable. He's like, why do you keep waking me up? I didn't say anything. Go to bed. Third time, he says, Eli, you called my name. And he said, I didn't. And then it finally dawns on Eli. He's not hearing things. He's not, you know, psychotic. God's talking to him. So he says, next time it happens, say, speak, Lord, I'm listening. And so he does, and God comes to him again, and he says, speak, Lord, your servant listens. And so God speaks to him. Now, the thing is, God has never audibly spoken to any of us. None of us have heard the voice of God calling us in the night. And if you know someone who says they did, they're wrong. They ate a bad burrito. They were having a bad dream. I don't know. Say, how can you know that? Because God doesn't speak audibly to us anymore. He gives us the Holy Spirit to speak to us. So how do we... No, look, it'd be great. I I look at people in the Old Testament, and I kind of envy them. I envy Abraham being able to sit down and have a meal with God. Envy Moses being able to spend 40 days in the presence of God and talking audibly to God. We don't have that. It'd be great if every morning when you woke up, God met you over coffee and said, okay, here's what you did wrong yesterday. Uh, It's a long list, but not as long as the day before, so we're getting better. Here's what to work on. Here's what I need you to do. That'd be incredible. But that's not what happened. So how do we really know what the, what God said and how do we know what is true or not? We have to go back to the starting point. And that's what we've been doing on this, this road to Easter journey we've been taking on. We've been seeing the roads that Jesus had took on his way Easter to the cross and the resurrection. We've been looking at what Jesus is, is teaching us on these journeys and what it means for us today. Now the good news is that if you are here this morning and maybe you've never accepted Christ as your Savior or maybe you have and you've been saved for several years or a few years but you you kind of have some doubt in what the Bible says about God because look, we live in a very skeptical society today. I really fear for it. That's what we really got to teach our children, the basics of the Bible and the foundational truth of the Bible. And this is what the Bible says, and this is why we believe it, and this is how we prove that the Bible is true. And this is how we know we can believe the Bible. Because they get taught all kinds of other things that contradict the teachings of the Bible. And so they kind of, well, well the Bible says this, and the preacher says this, but, you know, my YouTube creator says this. Or the Twitter guy I follow says this. Or the TikTok and look, don't, don't, anyway. Uh, or my teachers say this. Or society says this. So what do I believe? So we got to understand how to believe what God says. But the good news is doubt about who Jesus is is not uncommon. You know, Peter struggled with doubt about who Jesus was. You know, Peter, he was one of the first apostles... To give up everything to follow Jesus. Gave up his fishing business. Gave up, left his family, left everything, left his wife, left his mother-in-law. Not a big deal, uh, but left all of them. Uh, and maybe that's why he left, because his mother-in-law lived with him. That's probably why he left his wife. Uh, but anyway, he uh, just say in April. Um, but so you know, he left everything to follow Jesus. Uh, he, had, he had a lot of people come to follow Jesus and become followers of Christ because of Peter. He, he is the one who, he says he's willing to lay down his life for Jesus. And in the garden, he kind of proves it because in the garden, when these trained temple guards show up to, to arrest Jesus, he's the only one swinging a sword. Nobody else, and look, he's not a good, he's not a swordsman. Well, how do you know? Because he's aiming for head and hitting ears. And so he's not great with the sword. He's not a fighter, but he's willing to fight these trained guards to defend Jesus. But then we see him at the trial of Jesus. Somebody comes up to him and says, aren't you a follower of his? And No, I don't know who he is. Second time, aren't you, Are you sure? I'm pretty sure I saw you. ...following him or teaching with him or, or help... ...no, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that guy, Jesus. And then a third time, and he, said, he gets so, so scared... ...and he, he curses and swears... ...and then says, I don't know the man. That's a long way from... ...I'm going to cut off this guy's head to protect him... ...to, I don't know that guy. He goes out and he, he weeps bitterly. You know, and then of course Jesus dies... And Peter's confused, because Jesus wasn't, in his opinion, in his mind, Jesus wasn't supposed to die. He was coming to set up his kingdom. He was supposed to come into Jerusalem as a conquering king, destroy the Roman government, overthrow the Jewish religious leaders, and set up his kingdom and his throne with Peter helping rule the kingdom of God. But Jesus died. How could, how could God uh, allow this? Why would a, a loving God have Peter give up everything to follow Jesus for three years and then just end it? Take him away. Leave him alone to carry on. Everything changed for Peter. On resurrection morning. Let's look at uh, John chapter 20. we We'll start reading verse number 1. Bible says the first day of the week. come And again, the first day of the week in this te- in this time was Sunday. Sunday was the first day of the week. Not Monday. Like, well, Monday's the first day. No, it ain't. Sunday's the first day. So on the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early. When it was yet dark unto the sepulcher. And seeing the stone taken away from the sepulcher. She runneth and cometh to, and come to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they had laid him. Peter, therefore, went forth and the other disciple and came to the sepulcher, and they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter. Now remember, the other, who's the other apostle? John, who's writing this book? John. John put a dig in there to Peter. I'm faster than you, ha, I just think that's so funny. (laughs) Peter was slow. Um, So he did outrun the first uh, Peter and came to the sepulcher. And he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet he went not in. Then came Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulcher and seeing the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes wrapped together in a place by itself then went in also the other disciple which came first to the sepulcher and they saw and believed for as yet they not knew the scripture that he must ri- for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead now I want to focus on that last part of, chapter, of verse number 8 they believed they haven't believed at this point You know, it always amazes me, Jesus, for for three years, has been telling them what's going to happen. Three days before, before he was arrested, he told them, I'm going to die, but on third day, I'm going to rise again. And they, they heard this over and over and over, but they didn't believe it. You say, how do you know they didn't believe it? Because when Jesus rose from the tomb, they weren't there waiting. No one was, not even Mary and them. So they came to the tomb to prepare his body for burial, to honor him and, and be good to him. They didn't go there because, like, hey, he said he's coming up the third day. We got to be there to see what's going to happen. No, no, no. They went there to, to mourn him, to weep over him. Peter's not even there. But he comes in, he gets outrun by John. He sees the empty tomb. He believes. Now remember, Mary told him they stole his body. But Peter knows what happened. He says, oh yeah. He said he was going to rise. I guess he did. Peter, he walks into the tomb, a defeated, discouraged doubter of Jesus. He walks out. One of the most powerful leaders... Of the Christian church. From this point on. The followers of Jesus. The disciples and the apostles. They look to Peter. For decision making. Peter's the one. Preaching Pentecost. Peter and John are the ones at the temple. Getting arrested because they're they're preaching the gospel. Peter's the one that really kind of kicks off. The whole church movement. Peter becomes an incredible leader. What changed him? Was it some new insight into the teachings of Jesus some new lesson Jesus taught him no he came face to face with the empty tomb he saw a place that should have had a body in it but didn't he saw a place that should have had death in it but it was empty his faith had become sight so as we continue, the, to, as we come to the end of the road to the resurrection, I, wanna, I want you to see yourself as Peter. Put yourself in Peter's position. You know, many of us, we've, we've had questions about Jesus. There are things about Jesus and teachings in the Bible that really don't make sense to our finite minds. Maybe, maybe you're like Peter and something happened and you're, you're disappointed in God. Unexpected happened. Some, some tragedy occurred that you thought shouldn't have happened, or your life was going on, on track and you, you were headed one way and you thought, man, this is my plan. This was going to happen. But something happened to, to derail your plans, or some tragedy came in that just stopped you in your tracks. And you're like, God, why did you allow that to happen? Why did you do that? Why did you let God, you're a loving God. Why did you do that to me? And you start to, to doubt. God you know maybe you're like Peter and Peter of course he he denied Jesus and he felt like his relationship was beyond repair maybe maybe you haven't denied God but you've you've allowed sin into your life you've allowed the flesh to take over and you've you've drifted from God so much that you look at your life and you think God there's there's no way you can use me I've, I've just I've done too much I've gone too far there's no way I can be useful. You know, John, of course, here in John 20, the Bible says, Mary, Magdalene, it goes to, she goes to Peter. I want you to look at it again. Uh, then she runs and comes to Simon Peter. See, why'd you go to Simon Peter? Well, in, in Mark chapter 16, Jesus tells her, says, But go your, but go, the angel tells her, but go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter. See, Jesus wanted. ...to make a point to single out Peter... ...because Peter was at the bottom. Peter felt useless and, and worthless and used... ...and so Jesus told Mary, he says, go find Peter... ...and let Peter know I'm not done with him. Let Peter know that the power that rose me from the grave... ...can redeem him and use his life for my kingdom... So I want us to experience what Peter experienced and see how that impacts us today. The first thing I want to look at is I want to look at the fact of the empty tomb. The fact that the tomb that Jesus was placed in that Sunday morning, the fact that the tomb was empty is a well-established fact. There is no one that doubts that Jesus, that his tomb was empty. No one denies it. Skeptics believe and agree that his tomb was empty. Historians who aren't even uh, religious scholars, they believe and agree his tomb was empty. And of course, we as believers, we believe and know his tomb was to be empty. We, Everyone knows the tomb of Jesus was empty that Easter morning. The thing we disagree about is why it was empty. Why was this tomb empty? You know, every every religious and secular scholar, they agree that a man named Jesus lived in this area in this time and was a well-known and well-respected teacher. They all agree he was executed by the Romans by crucifixion. They all agree that he was buried in the tomb and that three days later that tomb was empty, but they, they, no one disagrees with that fact, but they, they disagree with how the tomb got empty. There are three main theories i want to look at as to who, how, people, how people try to explain how the tomb was empty. The first theory is someone stole the body. Even Mary Magdalene believed that. Maybe she goes to Peter and she doesn't say the Lord's risen in this account. She doesn't say, Jesus is alive, I saw it, I saw him, he's going to come get you. No, she goes to Peter and says, They stole the body. Well, who stole the body? They. Well, who's they? All right, so who do they think stole the body? Maybe it was the Romans. Yeah, you know, the Romans could have stole the body. Now remember, when you're trying to <clears throat> find out, you know, who did something, you've got to have means, motive, and opportunity. The Romans had the means and they had the opportunity. There there was a legion. There were 14 well-trained, well-armed Roman guards guarding that tomb that day. They could have stolen it. They could have rolled the stone away, stolen the body of Jesus, taken it somewhere and done something with it. They had the opportunity. They had the means. But why would they? What's their motive? They were the ones that killed him. If you look at the story, when he was placed in the tomb, Pilate put his seal on the tomb. For them to take the body, they would have had to break break the seal of Caesar. Because it wasn't Pilate's seal, it was Caesar's seal. And if they were to break the seal of Caesar to get Jesus out, they would have been executed themselves. So, what's their motivation for stealing the body of Jesus? They just... They didn't have anything. You know, why, why risk it? They had nothing to gain and everything to lose. Maybe it was the Jewish leaders. Now, they had motivation. They knew that Jesus had taught that he was going to rise three days later. That's why they wanted the guards put there in the first place. Because they were afraid that the apostles would come and steal the body. So they had the guards put there. So their motivation was, hey, we got to steal this body so that when the disciples try to say he's risen from the dead, we can show them the body and say, Ha no, he's not, we still got him. They they had the motive to do it, but, you know, how could they? Again, there's 14 well-trained, well-armed Roman guards guarding that too. Maybe they bribed the guards. Very possible. So maybe the Jewish leader said, Hey, where they went, they bribed the guards, says, let's just take the body. We're not going to tell anybody. But when the disciples tried to say that he rose from the dead, we'll show them the proof that he's really dead. Okay, that's their motivation. Maybe they had opportunity to do it. But when the apostles started saying Jesus rose from the dead, why didn't they bring his body? Why didn't they dispute it? Why didn't they say, no, he didn't. We have his body. We stole his body. We know he's really dead. So if they were the ones that did it, why haven't they ever brought forth the evidence that he's dead maybe third of people that may have stolen it was maybe it was the apostles you know they maybe the disciples did it they had motive you know they they he was their beloved teacher and maybe they did, didn't steal him to prove the resurrection but they wanted to steal him to honor him to give him a proper Burial. Maybe they they wanted to say, hey, we're going to, you know, he said he's going to rise from the dead three days later. Everybody knows it, so we'll steal his body just to kind of prove that he did it. Uh, But you know what? Again, motive, yes. But how? They're a bunch of cowards. Peter doesn't, you know, Peter's, again, Peter's a fighter, but he's not a good fighter. So Peter, who just goes into fighting like this, he's going to go in and take on 14 Roman guards? And then move that stone away and get it on themselves? You know, they, they, they could have done it. They had the motive to do it, but they didn't have the means to do it. Also, why would they do it? You know, most people, people say, this is the, the most popular one who stole the body. The apostle stole it to gain something, to start this new religion or this new faith. But what did they have gained from it? Would they, did they gain power from stealing his body? No. Every single one of them were persecuted and died because they would not stop telling people that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, Greek historian, uh, Eusebius, he said that Peter... You know, we all know the story about Peter, how he was crucified. You know, we know the history, he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like a savior. But it's also, history tells us that Peter's wife was crucified the day before him and he was forced to watch it. And when he still refused... To deny that Jesus was risen from the dead, they they executed him. Now look, I understand. And I, I like I hope to say, if I'm ever in a situation where someone says, deny Jesus or I'm going to kill you, I I, I want to say, kill me. You know, I'm going to heaven. Pull the trigger. Peace out. You can't scare me with heaven. I I don't think I'd have any problem doing that. But someone puts a gun to April's head says deny Jesus or I kill her. I'll be honest with you. I'm probably going to be Jesus who? But Peter didn't do that. He, he, every one of the disciples, if it was truly a hoax, why would they all die? And again, they didn't die quick, painless deaths where I'm going to shoot you in the head. They died horrible, excruciating, torturous deaths because they refused to deny Jesus rose from the dead. If it was a hoax, why do that? They got no power. They got no money. They got nothing but suffering from it. So the the theory that someone stole his body is not very convincing... ...because no one had means, motive, and opportunity to do it. Another, Another theory is that Jesus never really died. He passed out on the cross... They bury him in the tomb. Three days later, he came to, rolled the stone away, snuck past the Roman guards, met up with his apostles, and if you believe you know, Dan Brown of the Da Vinci Code, moved to France, had a family, and lived the happy ever after. Okay, great. Jesus never died. That just To me, that one never makes any sense at all. Besides being stupid, there's a few things wrong with this theory. The Roman government was incredible at killing people. They had mastered execution and crucifixion. They knew when someone was dead. As a matter of fact, they were so good at it that there was a law that if if someone was taken down before they were dead, then whoever took them down, whatever Roman guard took them down they're going to be crucified as well. So they made very sure people were dead before they took them off the cross. You know, John tells us that during this time, uh, because most of the way that people died during crucifixion, they died with, with, by suffocation. But while they're on the cross, they would pull themselves up and with their legs because they got nails to their feet, nails to their hands. So they would pull themselves up and breathe and then let themselves down. So what the Romans would do when it started getting dark, because again, there's a law you can't. ...be left on the cross after the sun goes down... you got to be dead before the sun goes down... ...this is a Jewish thing... ...so what they would do is they would come through and they would break their legs... ...so that they could not lift themselves up... ...and they would suffocate faster. When they get to Jesus... ...he was already dead. John says it because they got to him... ...they saw that he was already dead... ...so what they do instead of breaking his legs... ...they stuck a spear in him... ...now this was to, to fulfill scripture... ...because the Bible says... ...no bone would be broken... So this was to fulfill scripture. But so they, they stabbed him with a spear. And the Bible says blood and water came out. Now again, people died. When they died during crucifixion, they did died of one of two ways. One of the ways was hypovolemic shock. This is where the heart beats so fast that it causes fluid to build up around the heart and then the heart stops beating and you die. But there's fluid around the heart. So when you are pierced, through the heart, and there's fluid around your heart, you know what's going to come out? Water and blood. It wasn't water, but I mean, come on. They didn't have, oh well, out came plasma, and you know, they they didn't know that. You know, to them it's water. The second way, again, was asphyxiation. But when you would suffocate, as you suffocated, again, fluid would build up around your heart. So when your heart is pierced, it appears as if blood and water came out. So according to To Rome and John, Jesus died on the cross. There's another reason that uh, Jesus most definitely died and did not just pass out. If you know, we we didn't look at it a lot but this week, this last couple weeks, but Jesus, before he was hung on the cross, he was scourged. He was beaten twice. Now, the first beating that that Pilate had him give was kind of a... Uh, it was, he was beaten with like leather straps. It wasn't to, to hurt him or kill him. It was to kind of punish him, to kind of give the Jewish leaders where they could say, oh, you beat him good enough. Okay, go ahead and let him go. He was trying to let him go. But they would beat him with these leather straps. And look, it hurt. I'm not saying, oh, it was, it was no big deal. No, it was painful, but it wasn't deadly. Then he had him scourged. Historians tell us most people did not survive the scourging. Because it wasn't just a regular beating; they had this this tool called the cat-of-nine-tails. It was a leather whip and had nine or or ten or twelve, depending on who it was. Uh, It was called the cat-of-nine-tails, but it could have had more than nine. But it had these tails on it. And on the end of each of these little tails, these little whips that come out, they would sew little broken pieces of pottery or, or bone or metal. So that when they whipped someone and they pulled it back, they were ripping flesh off the body. And the Roman scourgers were great at this. They were very well practiced. And a lot of historians tell us that when they would rip, when they would scourge someone, that, you, you could, that flesh would come off. That a lot of times a, a rib would be ripped from the body because it was grabbed on. That they could wrap it around and literally disembowel someone. It was a brutal... ...thing to go through. And, you know, again, I've read this things, ...this book, I kind of read it every once in a while... ...a medical examination of the cross... ...and this, this doctor, this Christian doctor... ...who kind of examines what Jesus went through... ...says his, his, his back would have been so ripped open... ...that his spinal column would have been exposed. That his ribs could have been exposed to air... ...because of just all the flesh... ...ripped off of his body. Most people did not survive the scourging that's why Jesus died on the cross before the other two because here's the thing if you were scourged you weren't crucified because they were both a form of execution so if you were scourged you were going to you may not have died during the scourging but you were going to die slowly and painfully from shock and blood loss So if they scourged you, they didn't crucify you because you were going to die regardless. Jesus was scourged and crucified. That's why he died before the thieves. They weren't weren't scourged. That's why they had to have their legs broken. So if someone did survive the scourging as Jesus did and were crucified, they weren't going to survive the crucif- so if someone had survived the crucifixion, it wasn't someone who was scourged first. He, would, he lost way too much blood to survive, let alone be strong enough three days later to wake up, roll away a big stone, and just walk out with no one noticing him. So the only theory that really stands up to scrutiny is a third steer- theory. Jesus really did rise from the dead. That's the only one that stands up. It's the simplest explanation. He rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples in his his glorified body. He commissioned them to go out and spread the news of his death, burial, and resurrection. And they were willing to give their lives to to spread this news because they saw the risen Savior. They saw the empty tomb. They were willing to give it all because they'd seen it with their own eyes. So if that's the only one that really makes sense, why don't people believe it? Wolford Patterson, he's a theologian, he said, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that no one would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. Some people just don't want to consider... Supernatural explanations. They just don't want to believe in miracles. They gotta have everything in science and everything's gotta line up, and you gotta have facts and all this stuff. And so they don't wanna they don't want to believe in the supernatural. If they believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then they have to believe in this miracle and they just, just refuse to believe that. But here's the thing: closing your mind off to any explanation is a definition of being closed-minded. Others, they just don't want to believe because they you understand, if I truly believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, then, then I have to change how I live. I have to change how I treat people. Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, that means he really is God. That means he really is Lord of everything. That means he's Lord over morality. He's Lord over salvation. He's Lord over politics. He's Lord over our relationships. He is Lord over everything. You know, just Huxley, he coined the term agnostic. How many of y'all know what agnostic means? No, you don't. Uh, you probably do. <clears throat> the word agnostic, it means that they, that it means someone, you, I don't, if I'm agnostic, it's like, okay, I don't know, or I don't believe you can know, that there is a God. So, and if there is a God, there's no way we can know that he cares about us at all. So if there is a God, he doesn't get involved in our lives at all. And if he does exist, he doesn't interact with man. So this, this guy, Aldous Huxley, he, he coined the term agnostic. Here's what he said as to why he coined it, why he came up with the term agnostic. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. For myself, as well as for most of my compatriots, the philosophy of meaninglessness was a philosophy of liberation. And the liberation we sought was liberation from Christian morality. You know why he said he came up with the term agnostic? Because he didn't want to live, he wanted to live for himself. I wanted to have the freedom to live my life how I wanted to live. And if I believed in God, then God had the right to tell me how to live. So that's why I did it. You know, believing that Jesus raised from the dead means how you live your life has to match his teachings. Have you ever considered, personally, have you ever considered the evidence of the resurrection on, your own, on its own terms? Again, not what your preacher says or your parents always taught you. Have you ever looked at the resurrection and say, do I truly believe that the tomb is empty. And look, if you have, if you look at it and you say, God, I've looked at all the evidence, I've looked at all the the other options, and God, I just, the only explanation is, I believe you died on the cross and you rose again three days later to redeem me to God the Father. If you truly, great, that's what the gospel is. But if you do believe that, have you ever thought about how it should affect how you live? Not just, oh, well, that affects my eternity. That affects how I'm going to live later. No, no, no. That should affect how we live today. It should affect your family, your life, everything. If the resurrection is true and history and science and the Bible says that it is, what does that mean for us today? That brings us to the second point. The implications of the empty tomb. The empty tomb, the resurrection, meant three things for Peter, and it means three things for us today. Here's the first thing it meant for him. Number one, Jesus was who he said he was. Connor, next slide. Jesus was who he said he was. If Jesus really rose from the dead, and Peter knew it, and we can believe it today, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then that means he is God in the flesh. He is the Savior of mankind. And it didn't matter what Peter thought had happened. Because remember, before he gets in the empty tomb, he thinks Jesus is dead, they put his body in a grave, and everything's over, and I gave up my life for nothing, and he wasn't really who he said he was. It didn't matter what he thought had happened. His eyes proved that Jesus was God. In Acts chapter 4, Peter is, is arguing ...with some religious leaders, and they, they keep giving reasons why they believe Jesus can't be the Messiah. And look what Peter says in, in Acts 4. It says, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot help but declare what we've seen and heard. You know what Peter's saying there? you got your, your degrees, you got your Bible college degrees, and you've got your certificates, and you've got your doctorates... ...and you, you think you know everything... I know what I saw. I know what I've experienced. I saw the empty tomb. I saw the risen Savior. So you can say what you want to say. I'm going to say what I know to be true. Before the resurrection, Peter doubted and denied. After the resurrection, he never did. He went to his death proclaiming the truth that Jesus is God in the flesh, that Jesus is the Savior Of mankind. Because of the empty tomb, Peter knew Jesus was who he said he was. Because of the empty tomb, we can know Jesus is who he says he is. Second thing Peter learned, because of the empty tomb, his past didn't define him. His past didn't define him. Peter, again, Peter felt he was. He, he has let God down so much he was useless. And look, we're not gonna, we see it later on in different different gospel accounts. But even after Peter saw the empty tomb, even after Jesus sent Mary to him, even after that, Peter, his disciples say, Man, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? And Peter, yes, he believed Jesus was in the dead. But you know what he said? I denied Jesus. I can't, I can't do anything for him. I'm going fishing. I can't, I can't help him. I can't serve him. I can't be used by him. Y'all do what, you, y'all do what you're going to do. Y'all didn't deny him. Y'all didn't curse and swear and say he didn't, he wasn't, you didn't know him. But I'm, I'm worthless. I can't be used anymore. But after he met Jesus on the shore, everything changed. Look what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection from the dead and an incorruptible and undefiled inheritance that does not fade away, kept in heaven for you. Peter, in 1 Peter, he says, look, because of the resurrection, we have a new birth. We have a living hope. We have a peace and inheritance that is kept in heaven. He, the resurrection, changed how Peter saw himself. Look, your hope is in whatever you think gains you acceptance with God. If you think your good works gains you acceptance with God, what happens when you fail? Because you will. Now oh, you don't know me, pastor. I haven't sinned in 10 years. You just did. Because uh, you're a liar. Uh, you're arrogant. Uh, you're judgmental. So, yeah, we got a list of sins to go with. But if you're like, I'm going to heaven because I, I, I go to church every Sunday. And I'm faithful in it. And I do this. And I, what happens when you mess up? What happens when you sin? Then your, your hope is in your good works. And your good works just failed you. Then you have no, you have no hope. The gospel says that Christ gave us acceptance with God, not through our good works, but through his death, burial, and resurrection. He paid the penalty for sin because you never could. See, that's what the whole point of the Old Testament was. God said, look, you want to You want to be reconciled with me? You want your sin to be forgiven? You want to be brought into a a relationship with me? Great, here's what you got to do. Live a perfect, sinless life. Nobody ever could. So he said, okay, I love you so much, I'll sin, I'll become flesh. I'll live a perfect, sinless life. And then I will die for your sins. I will literally become sin so you can become The righteousness of God. See, the resurrection, he paid the penalty for your sin because you never could. And the resurrection is God declaring that he has accepted the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as payment for your sins. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter, after the resurrection, that's why Peter says, I have a new birth. I have an inheritance that is kept In heaven, it is secure through Jesus, not through me. See, your hope isn't in how well you live. Your hope is in the fact that Jesus took your place. The resurrection gives us hope that's not based on me, because I'm given a new life. You know, the church should be filled and is filled with people who have, you know, terrible pasts. Drug addiction, adultery, time in jail, bitterness, ...racism, hate... ...but God changes them. Not because they were decent people... ...that they needed a second chance... ...but because they were dead... ...and God gave them new life... ...through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your past... ...isn't outside... ...of God's grace. You have done nothing... ...in your life... ...that the death, burial... ...and resurrection of Jesus Christ... ...cannot erase... From your record. Nothing. Your past does not define you. As a believer, the resurrection defines you. Because of the empty tomb, Peter knew Jesus was who he said he was. He knew his past was forgiven. And thirdly and finally, he knew his future was secure. Again, in 1 Peter, verse 4, it says, I have an undefiled inheritance that does not fade away, kept in heaven for you. Peter knew, he goes, look, I I have an inheritance that can never be taken away, that will never fade away. Because of the resurrection, his inheritance would never spoil. But here's the thing, things on this earth fade, they spoil, everything, all of them. Look, I remember when we first, I was thinking, I I noticed it this week. When we first when we merged here and became new New Grace, uh, New Horizon, and Grace, and we became New Grace, we got that new sign out front. Man, I paid a lot of money for that sign, and I paid extra for UV protection on that sign. You know what I noticed this week? It's fading. That UV protection ain't protecting like it ought to, because things on Earth fade. You know, your wealth can fade. Man, you can put your money in the stock market, guess what? The stock market can crash. You can put your money in Bitcoin, and guess what? I don't know what a Bitcoin is, but it can fail. <laughs> put your money in your health. Your health's gonna fade. I remember when I was uh, when I was younger, me and April first got married, man, and and I would and you know, even after we got married several years, I, I would work construction, I'd build log cabins, and I, I could go out all day and I could work hard, I could. You know, put up logs, and I could build houses, and I could stay up late and get up and keep do the whole thing. I mean, I'd wake up the next morning after working hard all day, and I'd feel great. I hurt myself sleeping with the wrong pillow. Now I sleep on my I sleep on my wrong side. I wake up going, "Oh my hip!" Oh, why my health faded. Yours will too. He's well, I, I eat well, I take care of myself, I you know, all the kale in the world will not keep you healthy when a bus runs you over. <laughs> Hell's going to fade. Stuff's going to fade. But because of the resurrection, we have an inheritance in heaven that will never fade away. We have a future that is secure. No matter how bad your life is here, no matter how sick you may get, no matter how how bad it may be on this earth, you have a a, a, a place in heaven that is never going to fade away. You have the promise of a glorified body with Jesus that is secure and is solid and will never fade away because Jesus is risen today. Cause of the resurrection, your future is secure. You know, our faith Has a starting point. It's the empty tomb. It's the resurrected savior. It is true. And it means something. For us. It means. That Jesus is. Who he says he is. Jesus is. God. In the flesh. It means he did for me. What I could never do. And it means he is making me. Into someone new. And that my future is secure. See, the resurrection tells me that he's coming back to get me one day. Could be today. Wouldn't, be, wouldn't you love it if it was today, Brother McCormick? Even, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. He could come right now. Well, let me finish my message first. Then he can come on back. <laughs> <coughs> But the resurrection tells me my future is secure, and he's coming back to get me one day, and all things will be as they should have been. See, the resurrection is more than just a good story. It's a fact that changes things for us. But it has to be accepted to be powerful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.